Hello and welcome to episode 105 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, policy analyst, criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction, and Living Hope. Today's episode is my interview with Vincent Schiraldi about the Columbia Justice Lab report, The Enormous Costs of Parole Violations in New York. I should mention that a few weeks after we completed this interview, which has become a bit of a theme this season, Vincent was named the new commissioner of the New York City Department of Corrections. Vincent Schiraldi founded the policy think tank, the Justice Policy Institute, then moved to government as director of the Juvenile Corrections in Washington, D.C., and then as commissioner of the New York City Department of Probation. Most recently, he served as senior advisor to the New York City Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice. He's currently a senior research scientist and the co-director of the Justice Lab at Columbia University. Today, we are here to discuss the recently released paper, The Enormous Costs of Parole Violations in New York. Welcome back to the Decarceration Nation podcast, Vincent Giraldi. Thank you so much, Josh. Good to be back. Yeah, thanks for thanks for joining me again. Uh, I always ask the same first question, uh, but you've already heard it before. It's kind of the origin story question. But uh, since you've already told us how you kind of came to the work, uh, feel free to let folks know uh, anything more about your journey working uh, to reform the way we look at supervision in this country. To me, uh, I guess maybe an interesting part of this story would be I, when I became commissioner of probation in New York City, uh, I had never worked in probation before. I mean, I, I kind of knew a bit more about it from my nonprofit work, um, but I hadn't been, uh, I hadn't worked there. Uh, and so I, I, I think that's an interesting way to approach it because I hadn't been a 20-year man or a 30-year man or a woman and so I was able to, to kind of look at it with a fresh set of eyes and really look at what is the elemental purpose of this thing. And are we deploying resources, you know, the 80 plus million dollars a year that the city puts into it uh, to do that thing? And so we'll talk more about that. But you know, I think the answer was no. And I think the answer is no for lots of probation and parole agencies. Uh, but it's hard to get to know unless you are able to look at it with a fresh pair of eyes. And that was an advantage for me, I thought. Yeah, it makes sense that if you come at it from a different direction, you might come up with a different kind of analysis and solutions. Uh, so I've done kind of several, several episodes about supervision. How would you best summarize the problem we face as a country uh, as a result of how we approach supervision? This thing, or these two things that were created as helpful alternatives to incarceration, probation and parole, uh, largely individualistic, voluntary at first, uh, voluntary in terms of who were the parole and probation officers, uh, has, has now morphed into a very managerial process that is, uh, gives you as much of a chance of locking you up, adding to incarceration as it does to reducing incarceration and is not providing any substantial measure of help. Is there kind of a history or a story of how we got from kind of where we started to where we are now? Yeah. So we, you know, it started in the 1800s. John Augustus is, you know, regularly thought of as the father of probation, uh, temperance movement bootmaker in Boston, uh, who just started to bail people out of jail and uh, tell the judge, let me work with this guy for a little while and I'll come back and see if, uh, see if we can't 
help steer them in a different direction instead of put them in the stocks or in the house of correction. Um, and similarly, uh, um, Zebulon Brockway on the, in the U.S. context, uh, who was the warden of the newly minted Elmira Penitentiary in 1876, began releasing the young people. It was uh, people below the age of 30 were locked up there. Uh, once they programmed and behaved well in prison, released them early and had a bunch of volunteers uh, working with them in the community. That's the way it all started. Um, and then it, it, you know, started to become ensconced in law, both probation and parole. It became, you know, proliferated around the country. Uh, every state didn't have them even by World War II. But shortly after that, everybody had probation, everybody had parole, became a government function, still very focused on rehabilitation and individualization. Um, so much so that the leading cases, uh, the Gagnon case and the Morrissey case, Morrissey v. Brewer is the case that defines the, the uh, due process protections people on parole enjoy, or rather don't enjoy, and Gagnon v. Scarpelli uh, for probation. Um, and, and when the courts gave people under supervision diminished due process rights, severely diminished due process rights in, in the 1970s, 72 and 73, those two decisions are. Here's what they wrote. While the parole or probation officer recognizes his, and it's his, double duty to the welfare of his clients and to the safety of the general community, by and large, concern for the client dominates his professional attitude. The parole agent ordinarily defines his role as representing his client's best interest as long as these do not constitute a threat to public safety. And, and they go on to say, um, presumably it would be inappropriate for a field agent never to revoke. The whole thrust of the probation parole movement is to keep men in the community. This is what they were writing. This is what today's Morrissey and Gagnon hearings, and that's what they call them, if you're getting revoked, are premised on this notion that this was a friendly process. Now, in 1972, when they ruled, there were only 196,000 people in U.S. prisons. And in 2017, the most recent year we have revocation data for, 266,000 people were revoked. So there are more people going to prison just due to violations of probation and parole today, considerably more, than the entire prison population when they ruled on Gagnon and Morrissey. And so you a, would, a major change. And so you would point to that being kind of the, the, the tipping point from how we got to kind of the original idea, from the original idea to where we are now, or are there other like kind of inflection points, or is, would you say that's the major one? No, no, it's, I, I don't think that's a major one at all, really. I think I just wanted to juxtapose that premise, the premise upon which today's law is based, to current day reality. What happens is right after this, or right around the same time, a couple of things happen. One is the Nixon and the Republican Party uh, uh, engage in a Southern strategy to peel away Southern voters and Northern uh, uh, suburban voters from the Democratic Party, who were pretty reliably Democratic at the time, by racializing crime and poverty. Uh, and uh, in doing so, launched the war on drugs that, that Nixon declares. 
And at the, right around that same time, an uh, obscure researcher at the City University of New York, a guy named Robert Martinson, writes what would become one of the most influential papers in the history of criminology, what's, what's become known as the Martinson Report, uh, alleging that nothing works when it comes to rehabilitating. So those two things happen within a few years of one another. And uh, that's, those, that's the major inflection point. Uh, rehabilitation is declared dead. Uh, parole boards start to vanish around the country. Probation and parole uh, administrators like myself start to toughen ourselves and emulate our big cousin, the prison. Uh, we start to wear flak jackets, carry guns, meet out intermediate sanctions. We rename our field community corrections, essentially prison in the community. Uh, and we just start adding conditions to people's lives and imprisoning them when they don't abide by those conditions. From 1972 to 2009, the prison population would rise every single year, a five-fold increase. Probation and parole, which were invented as an alternative to, to, the, to the prisons, uh, rise right alongside them. So if they were really an alternative, what you'd be expecting to see is if probation and parole were increasing about fourfold, prison and jail populations should have been declining. But since both were going up at the same time, I think most researchers and advocates now view prison and, uh, probation and parole as an add-on to the carceral state rather than an alternative to it. Yeah, I think most, you know, in the same vein, I think most folks who aren't deeply steeped in reform kind of assume that the lack of supervision means there has to be more risk to the community and more crime, uh, especially after seeing kind of the backlash that happened in New York after bail reform. Uh, if you were speaking to kind of these skeptics and kind of a, with a large microphone, you know, what would you kind of, what, where would you start? That in places, when I, when I speak to conservatives about this, I say, when did you guys become such big believers in government intervention? And it's not just the prisons now. At least if somebody's in prison, as the saying goes, they can't mug my sister, right? But, but, and so at least you're getting incapacitation for that period of time. I think the research shows overall that there's very disappointing public safety outcomes from our massive expenditures on prison. But at least they got that argument on their side. Plus, it's, it is pretty damn punitive. So even if you don't care about the outcomes, you're getting a punishment out of it. Probation and parole are kind of meh in that regards. There's not a lot of evidence that they improve public safety. Amy Solomon, when she was at the Urban Institute, did a paper showing that um, people who released on parole and people who are not released on parole do about the same. So it's not really affecting public safety. New York City used to have 82,000 people on probation. Uh, and now we have 13,000 people on probation. And during that time period, that decline was about the mid-90s to, to today. Both uh, Rikers population, the jails, and uh, arrests and, and, and crime in New York City have plummeted. So the, the, the vanishing of 75% of, of probation supervision in New York City doesn't seem to have impacted either incarceration or public safety. So, uh, you know, I, I, think that, I think that this is one of those uh, uh, systems that really needs to be elementally examined from its original purpose. If we're trying to keep safer and we're trying to divert people from incarceration, 
are our expenditures on probation and parole the best bang for the buck? Or should we be doing this much, much less frequently or even experimenting with abolition? And, uh, you know, I mean, I've also in, in the report and in other places, there's suggestions that uh, the problems with supervision uh, and the stress of supervision can be counterproductive to public safety. Is that also correct? I mean, you know, you got people being sent back to prison for missing appointments and testing dirty for drugs. And sometimes they're being sent back and then returned to the community six weeks later. I, I met a guy um, a, a year ago. I was speaking to the board of a nonprofit organization that uh, does some really terrific work in New York with in helping people coming out of prison find employment. And uh, this guy was on the panel with me, and he was telling a story about himself. And his story was uh, he got out of prison. This nonprofit helped him find a job. And, but the job was at night. So his case manager at the nonprofit called his PO and asked for permission for the guy to be able to work a night job because the PO had sent him to the nonprofit. So that PO said, sure. It was actually a good job. It wasn't just some burger flipping job. It was a career path job that was paying well above minimum wage. So it was, you know, it was a good score. So he, he's working that job. He goes from one PO to another PO to another PO. This happens very frequently. And I think the fourth or fifth PO just goes to his apartment and knocks on the door after the 7 p.m. curfew. He's not home because he's working and she violates him. Now he goes to Rikers Island, which is where you go initially on a, on a technical parole violation in New York while you await your hearing. And it took six weeks to figure out that he really shouldn't have been violated. And so then he gets released. But he said, when I went to jail, I had a girlfriend, a job, a car, and an apartment. And six weeks later, I had none of those things at the start all over. The guy was incredibly calm about it. I, I was pretty enraged, as was the board of this nonprofit. Uh, and he was, you know, he had started over. He had an apartment and a job by that point. No girlfriend, but no car. Uh, but he was working on it. <laughs> And, you know, so, you know, it's just a, it, it's the trivialization of people's people's liberty interests in this massive managerial system with 4.4 million people on it um, that was designed as an individualistic approach. And it's never kind of been redesigned. And there's also a uh, kind of disparate impact on people of color, right? Yes. Uh, the research shows. And by the way, it's not a lot of great research in this space. In the mid-80s, when it became apparent what was happening with mass incarceration, a lot of the best researchers started you know, moving their talents over to uh, the effects of prison and jail on society. And uh, probation and parole research really ebbed at that point. So there's not a tremendous amount of research. And it, it's an area where really people need to look into it more deeply. And I, I think that's true of advocates and philanthropy as well. This, is, this needs paying attention to it. One out of every four people going to prison in America are entering for a technical violation of probation or parole. So it's a very non-trivial number and certainly non-trivial to each and every one of them. Uh, but anyway, the research shows that uh, people of color are uh, supervised at higher rates and revoked at higher rates. If you think about even when you control for other uh, uh, significant factors like prior arrest and current offense. Um, when you look deeper into it, Michelle uh, Phelps has done some tremendous research on this uh, in Ebony Ruland. 
when you look that when they've looked deeper into it, uh, what their research shows is that it seems as though probation particularly serves as a true alternative, mostly for white people who are, you know, white middle and upper class people who tend to be facing actual jail or prison when they get probation, as opposed to it being just sort of a net widener for people of color, and who are better able to navigate it because they have resources. If I have to go see a PO as a university professor, I can go see a PO. If I have to spend three hours waiting to see my PO, I'm not going to get fired from my job. Uh, and if he makes me or she makes me do that every week, I can do that. I can drive my car there. Uh, I don't have to worry about the train's breaking down and me missing an appointment and getting revoked. And so there are a lot of things that middle-class people take for granted that enables us to navigate probation and parole that aren't true for people of color who tend to you know, not have as, as many resources as, as white folks. So yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's another way uh, that the system's disparate. Yeah, um, you know, you kind of brought this up already a little bit, um, but your report focuses on the problem in New York, in particular around technical violations of parole and probation. While I suspect the vast majority of people listening know what a technical violation is, just on the off chance we don't want to lose anyone, can you briefly kind of explain what you mean by a technical violation? Yeah, good point. And I sh- I'm going to explain probation and parole too for a second. Like probation <laughs> sure. is, a, is a sentence you get up front and it was designed to get it in lieu of incarceration. Parole is at the back end. Uh, you're getting released sometimes early, sometimes not, uh, and then supervised post-release by a parole officer. And in both cases, you're only conditionally free. You're not quite free. Because you have to obey a bunch of rules. Uh, you have to, often you have a curfew. You're not able to associate with somebody else with a felony record. You can't use drugs or alcohol. You can't use drugs or alcohol, by the way, even if they're legal. So you can't, some, some, sometimes, and the rules aren't universal. But I know of no place that, for example, does not make it a violation of probation to smoke marijuana in states where marijuana is legal. I could be wrong about that because I don't know everything, and now it's 16 states. But if anybody knows different, let me know. But right now, in all the states I've contacted, it's still a violation of probation to smoke marijuana, even if it's legal in your state. Uh, so things like that. Uh, you're not allowed to get a credit card without asking permission. You're not allowed to get a driver's license without asking You're not allowed to uh, travel out of state without getting permission. Uh, so this has... And, and I think each and every one of these conditions was developed in many respects with a benign intent at worst, maybe even good intent. I think they're paternalistic, but I don't think they were designed specifically to lock people up. Others might argue with that. I don't think they were. Uh, and they're defensible, right? I don't want my kid hanging out with other bad kids. So I'm going to create an association uh, condition. You can't associate with somebody with a felony record not outrageous on its face. When you think about the fact that one out of three black men in America has a felony record, that means pretty much any probation officer can violate any black guy on probation anytime they want. Uh, Don't travel out of state. I ran into a, a person on when I was probation commissioner who, again, was stunningly calm, who told me that He had asked for permission to travel out of state to Jersey to go to college because he got a scholarship to college. He was still going to stay living in New York, 
but he wanted to go to school. And uh, the PO said yes. His supervisor said yes. They, they, nobody was saying no. They all thought this was terrific. The guy got a scholarship. And, but it took so long for my office to respond to him that he, he missed a chance to get that scholarship. He did not. He, he had to forego his scholarship. We weren't even mad at this guy. We didn't even want to screw with him. And, and, but we, it's just become such a mass number. POs with 100, 200 people on their caseload that it's just too big to succeed. You, said, you mentioned that uh, you know, a lot of the, the technical uh, rules are set up and you can kind of see some reason for them. Uh, but you know, one of the assumptions, it seems to me, is that technical that the technical viol- things that become technical violations are markers for new crimes is does the evidence back that up is there no do, yeah. no i mean that's the thing i mean so i shouldn't say no that definitively there's <laughs> evidence there's research evidence that spending time with bad influences influences you right especially young people young people are uh, uh, developmentally prone to follow peers. And we always think, oh, that's that peer pressure and negative. It's not always negative. That's why we put our kids in chess clubs and on football teams and on dance teams, right? Because sometimes peer, you follow good peers, right? But so it's, you know, there is some evidence that says, for example, that it's not great for people to hang around with bad influence. But, but now we have these standard conditions of 21 different things. And Unlike its origins, we don't um, we don't individualize them. So, Josh, if me and you knocked off a bunch of liquor stores, it would be appropriate for my PO to say, "I'm going to make it a rule that you and Josh can't hang around with one another." I think it would be a really stupid rule for him to say, "You can't hang around with anybody named Josh." That's what we kind of do. Nobody with a felony conviction. So, I again, over the last couple of years, I've been doing a lot of speaking on this. I met a guy that did a year in New York State prison on a technical parole violation because he married a woman with a felony record. I met another guy at a Fortune Society uh, counseling session where I was in attendance uh, who was living in a homeless shelter, even though his mother had a room for him at her house because she had a felony conviction, an ancient felony conviction. So this guy, even though it was a bedroom for him, was living in a homeless shelter. I got to tell you, homeless shelters are places where people go to fail, not to succeed, as that most recent case of Brendan Elliott uh, uh, shows us, the, the guy who was accused in that, um, that assault on an Asian woman in Manhattan that got a lot of national publicity. He was living in a homeless shelter. More than half of the people we parole from New York State uh, prisons into New York City go to a homeless shelter. And that's not a place where people are going to succeed. Uh, and at the same time, they have a rule. They can't associate with other people with criminal convictions. What do you think of, you know, homeless shelters? Like, they, they're actually going to not be able to associate with somebody with a felony conviction? <laughs> yeah, uh, there are a lot of interesting contradictions that kind of get built into the system. And as you said, I think the end result is that you could probably violate just about anybody. Uh, your report suggests that as of 2019, as many as 40% of the people sent to New York prisons were incarcerated on technical violations. So this is, uh, the scope of this problem is Pretty large. Oh, yeah. I mean, and New York, New York's an odd, an oddly terrible example. So New York has one of the lower incarceration rates. We have the lowest incarceration rate 
of any of the large 10 states. We're the lowest. And yet we have the second highest. We, we revoke and imprison for technical parole violations, the second highest number of people in the country behind only Illinois. And depending on how one counts, uh, we're arguably the highest. The research we did showed that that cost over $680 million at the state and county level. At the county and city level, um, the, 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 the county and city incur costs because before you go to prison uh, on a technical violation, you sit in the county jail or the city jails waiting for your hearing, your parole violation here, and then you go to state prison uh, if, if you're violating. And so basically what that means from a New York standpoint is um, that we're spending, New York City spends over $200 million just holding people, waiting for their technical violation hearings. So we're spending $200 million at the New York City level, 200 plus, 200 plus million dollars at the state level, imprisoning people for violations, but we're sending them when they come released from prison into homeless shelters. We got no money to house them, but we have $680 million to incarcerate. And now I want to, you know, like, I don't want to pin this exclusively on parole officers. And I know the parole officers kind of hate when I say this stuff uh, because they feel like I'm blaming them for it. And to be sure, there are going to be some mean, nasty parole officers. And there are also going to be some heroes. And I've, I've heard this from people that, you know, their parole officer treated them great. And there's going to be a whole bunch of people in the middle that want to get to the end of their 20 years, pay their mortgage, send their kids to college. And they don't want to do anything along the way that might cost them their job. And I think that's, I think that's where, where a lot of problems come in because people are engaged in these incredibly risk-averse uh, bureaucracies trying to make these decisions about individuals they have hundreds of folks on their caseload. They have no money for housing, no money for helping them find a job, no money for helping people with their mental health or substance abuse problems or to help them get an education. But with the stroke of a pen, they can spend $76,000 a year reincarcerating them. It's actually a surprise we don't do it more often. Yeah, uh, the financial costs uh, uh, to society and, and, and just the you know obvious misuse of resources seems pretty strong. Has the research on supervision given you any kind of additional insight in the, you know, I often say it that when I do speaking and stuff like that, that it doesn't make any sense if you're trying to increase public safety to make people radically insecure. Uh, has your research given you any kind of additional insight into the importance of like housing and employment and mental health and reentry and, and, and increasing community safety? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot of uh, good research that people are doing about the stress levels that you just talked about about the amount of stress this puts on people on parole, their families, and their neighborhoods. Uh, uh, Megan Comfort's on some really interesting work on family stress that accompanies parole because, you know, it's not just that the parole officer can walk into my space if I'm on parole, but they're walking into my wife's space, my family's space. Uh, they're encouraging my, my wife to snitch on me. And if, if I, you know, use drugs, uh, it really kind of warps a lot of relationships. Uh, um, Alice Goffman wrote a book called On the Run, and I really encourage people to take a look at it. It's, it's, she lived in a, a neighborhood in Philadelphia for several years and focused specifically on 
the impact it has on a community at a community level of having this many people out on bail, under pretrial release supervision, on probation, on parole, all these young black men sort of on the run with the, the, the law enforcement and parole and probation uh, apparatchik having a role in their lives. And it was, it, you know, it was really, really sort of startling, to, including things like, you know, one guy misses some appointments. Now he's got a warrant out on him. His girlfriend's having a baby. She goes into labor. He's in the labor room with her. And the police look at the, at the visitation list in the hospital and come up to the room and in the middle of birth, snatch him and put him in jail. And then another guy later on promises his girlfriend he's going to go to the hospital, but he's got a warrant out on him for missing appointments or whatever it was for. wasn't for robbing a bank. It was just for some technical violation. And, you know, she's standing there with this guy as his phone's ringing and ringing and ringing because his girlfriend's calling him from the hospital. And he's explaining to her, I'm not going because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to end up like the other guy. Uh, and it's just, just little ways that this just kind of warps people's lives uh, and, 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 and obstructs their ability to do the exact thing we want them to do, which is, you know, turn their lives around and live a happy, healthy, normal life. You mentioned a few examples of programs that could help tens of thousands of people uh, with work and housing uh, that would, you know, technically cost less than the cost of supervision. Can you talk about these programs a bit more? Yeah, there's a couple of my favorites. Uh, the uh, kinship reentry, it's just starting. We don't have a lot of data on it, but it was kind of uh, uh, invented by the Osborne Association, Liz Gaines's organization, and funded by uh, Trinity Wall Street, and initially actually funded, uh, the, the planning grant was from the district attorney's office. And what it does is it recognizes the fact that a lot of people are coming out of prison. They don't have a good place to stay. They, some folks have family members that are willing to take them back, but a lot of those family members are poor and they don't have the resources to, you know, have a bigger apartment. So now a guy's sleeping on the couch and he's not going to stay on that couch very long before he, you know, goes out, finds another place to live. And sometimes that's a homeless shelter. So they basically provide stipends to families. Mostly it's women. Mostly it's a sister or a mother or a girlfriend uh, that people are returning Two, so that they can essentially get a bigger apartment. The guy can live there. Uh, and I, they do it for women, too. I, I say the guy because it's 85% men, but, but it's true for women as well. And then they provide social services in that house. They call it kinship reentry, uh, which is similar to um, the notion of kinship care that um, exists in the child welfare system, where instead of paying some stranger to be a foster parent, uh, they pay members of the person's family. Um, so, you know, that's, uh, that's an interesting model. I love that model. It's about $10,000 a year, way, way cheaper than, uh, you know, locking people up in, in prison. And I think way better. Um, and uh, were, there other en- were there other models that you think are, are interesting? Or Yeah, there's another one that a group called Impact Justice has... Uh, um, uh, what's what I'm, what's the word I'm looking for? Experimented with in, so, uh, in impact Oakland, justice California. in Oakland. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's called a homecoming project, and it kind of it kind of riffs off of Airbnb in essence. A lot of folks uh, in communities heavily impacted by incarceration, uh, you know, there's older folks whose 
kids have moved on and they got a house that's got an extra bedroom or two. Um, and like, you know, many other um, more affluent communities are Airbnb in those rooms to help pay the mortgage, pay the rent. Uh, they've essentially uh, hooked up with people in the neighborhood uh, and they are renting those rooms out essentially like an Airbnb for people coming out of San Quentin and uh, till they get on their feet, six months, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, depends on the individual. While they're there, they provide them with, you know, wraparound services, sort of resources to help them get back up on their feet. I, I love those two because they're, they don't require you to stick 12 people in a halfway house. Some of those halfway houses or 12 people or 100 people or 200 people, some of them are big and some of them are a lot like prisons. And most of us do better in a home-like environment. And so uh, you don't need to have a public use process for that. You don't need to go through any big deal. It's putting resources into the hands of community members. Uh, it's recognizing that people in communities are themselves assets, it's not looking at uh, uh, heavily impacted neighborhoods of just full of liabilities, which I think a lot of people do. So I kind of love those. I, I really kind of love those two programs. Um, I, one more, if it's okay. Sure. Um, when, the, when the pandemic hit in New York um, uh, and, and everywhere, um, the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice uh, was very motivated to reduce the population at Rikers Island, and they did. It went from like 5,500 down to 3,700. So it was, it was a pretty big reduction. And um, one of the ways they did it was they, they got a lot of the people in Rikers who were awaiting their hearings for technical violations out. They worked with the state. The state lifted the warrants on the folks. And the way they got them out was they contracted with the Exodus uh, uh, program in, in Harlem, uh, Julio Medina's program, formerly incarcerated guy. Most of their staff were formerly incarcerated. And they became navigators to help folks who weren't really quite making it on parole to make it. And they rented, the city rented hotel rooms. Exodus helped people exit <laughs> prison. And uh, in the hotels, they put lots of social services and health services. So they, they really kind of brought together the best of formerly incarcerated people, currently available services the city had, and housing. They treated it like an emergency. And what I, what I guess I want to say is, if my son was looking at doing time on a technical violation, it would be a damn emergency. And so how can we, how can we instead of dumping, it's, you know, nationally it's $2.6 billion we put in to incarcerating people in prisons for technical violations. That doesn't even include how much we're spending on jails. How can we say we need to access that money and treat the deprivation of liberty like it's a precious commodity, like we would treat it if it was our own son or daughter or husband or wife or father or mother, uh, and pour those resources back into communities so we can empower those communities they can themselves design solutions that would work for them and stop putting so many people back in for these ticky-tack technical violations. Um, in New York right now, uh, there's something called the less is more law. Uh, you, you mentioned that in the report. You want to talk about what that includes and what the prospects are for that? Yeah, it basically puts, you know, basically took this problem 
and said, how can we negate some of the dumber aspects of it? And it's, it's a campaign that's being run by the Katal Center, uh, a little piece of light, and Unchained, all of which have dominant leadership by people who are formerly incarcerated. And the, the Justice Lab and the Lippman Commission have been providing technical assistance and, you know, law writing and things like that. Um, so it's, it's, really, it's really kind of a grassroots-driven piece of legislation. It would eliminate a lot of the, uh, uh, the ability to incarcerate people for technical violations, takes them right off the board, like some of the ones I've mentioned, associating with somebody else with a criminal record or curfew violations. It just wipes them out. Uh, it, the, the few things that are left, uh, it would very heavily limit how much time you can get on a violation. A week for the first one, two weeks for the next one, and then 30 days for the third one, and never more than 30 days. Uh, it, one thing that's super interesting that I didn't even know before I started working on this is <coughs> people on parole in New York don't have a right to release pre-hearing. So they must go in pre-hearing. There is not a recognizance hearing. You only get incarcerated if you're, included, if you're uh, accused of a violation. It would actually give people the right to a hearing at which a judge would decide whether they should or should not be detained during the pendency of their case while it's being decided whether they actually committed this violation and whether it's serious enough to incarcerate them. Uh, and then it would also limit uh, how much time you can get on a violation if you commit a new crime. It wouldn't add it wouldn't add the whole rest of your sentence to whatever new sentence you get. It's only a short, shorter period. I think it's 30, 60, 90 days. Uh, so, oh, and then finally, one, one of my favorite parts is every month you don't get a violation, you, you get a month off your supervision. So if you have three years of supervision facing you when you come out of prison, uh, if you never get violated, you're done in 18 months. And that's not discretionary, it's statutory. It's just like good time in jail. As long as you don't mess up, you get it. So that puts the whole system on a diet. It does a lot less harm. Doesn't wipe it out completely, but it really reduces the harm. I think the next step will be, and this is what I know folks are going to push for, is if it passes, calculate how much money it saves and at least take a substantial portion of that and reinvest it in communities so they can have a nurturing, welcoming place for people to come back to when they come out of prison. Yeah, and I, I think you mentioned some examples in Colorado. I'm uh, uh, pretty familiar with the wages model uh, that you mentioned and uh, that's mentioned in your report. Uh, do, you, do you have any more thoughts about how community reinvestment could be a solution to this problem? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of strong research that says that more cohesive communities, communities with a lot more informal local supports do better than even similarly situated communities that don't have that. So when I was growing up, I was a kid, you know, in Brooklyn, it was a factory town. It wasn't, it was very blue collar, Greenpoint, Brooklyn, very gentrified now, but back then it wasn't. And, you know, there was literally that sort of old lady down the block that when she hollered at us, we better say, yes, Mrs. Jablonski, or we were going to be in trouble. And Mrs. Jablonski didn't have a phone. A lot of people didn't have phones back then, but somehow our mothers were all going to find out about it, right? That's kind of informal social control. And, but Mrs. Jablonski also, when it was like really hot, made us lemonade and cookies and stuff like that. She wasn't just sitting on a stoop yelling at us. She was engaged in a form of informal social control. And when, when 
we pivoted as a society towards mass incarceration, we simultaneously heavily disinvested in our urban areas and, and our poor. And we just took the resources out and replaced that with police and prisons. And we, in doing so, we really cut a lot of the informal supports and we jobbed it out to a less, what Bruce Rustin calls a, a thinner brand of safety. The, the safety that you only buy when a cop's standing nearby or during the time a guy's in prison. And then only for the community, not for the person in prison. Uh, what we need to do is, as we envision ending mass incarceration, we have to have two parts to it. One part is stop locking up so damn many people. But the other part is capture those savings and reinvest them in communities because communities will create a thicker brand of public safety than we'll ever buy from police and prisons. So I've saved kind of the, the, the really fun question uh, toward the end here. Um, originally, I was going to ask, is there a way to right-size supervision? But I decided to just ask, do we actually really need supervision? You know, I think supervision is one of those really, it's a challenging thing to imagine an abolitionist uh, uh, approach to because some people are saying, let's reduce prisons and put a lot more people on parole and probation. And some of the states, for example, during the pandemic that reduced uh, their prison populations, put people on parole. And so, you know, I, I think this is worth experimenting with. And if there's ever, if there's any jurisdiction out there that wants to do so, please call me because I think it is worth experimenting with abolishing parole. Several entities have suggested that. Marty Horn, who was my predecessor running probation in New York City, who ran parole for New York State, and who ran the prison system in uh, Pennsylvania, suggested abolishing parole supervision and just providing people with resources and supports in their own home communities. I, I feel like that's worth experimenting with. I think it's uh, if you captured these these savings and put them into communities and communities had a real hand in developing them, I cannot imagine that they wouldn't do better than hiring some civil service protected bureaucrat to look through your underwear drawer once a week and have you piss in a cup and tell you to go forth and sin no more. Uh, and so I, I think it's worth an experiment uh, and I think we should measure the hell out of it. Um, uh, there are other approaches that people suggest, which is to substantially reduce the number of people under supervision, provide resources, kind of the less is more approach, keep it in existence, make it hard to revoke, put fewer people on it, and put resources into the community. I think it's, I think it's worth looking at both approaches and seeing which works better. Um, I don't think any of us, if we want to be honest, know what the opposite of mass incarceration looks like, because we all grew up in mass incarceration. It's been around, you know, it started in 1972. So, you know, I'm, you know a lot of us don't know what a not mass incarceration society looks like anymore. Uh, and so I think we need to be a little humble about uh, where we go with the dismantling of mass incarceration. For my money, I, I think it's worth an experiment. Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, handicap which way it would go. Uh, I just think we need to be honest when we do what we do. How do you think we get to the point where we can collect data and deploy data sufficiently in a world where the first time someone recidivates, you know, I mean, one of the things I often say is that you shouldn't 
uh, calculate. You shouldn't just make decisions based on if, you know, someone recidivates. Uh, you should check how much recidivism was done before a reform and after a reform. So how do we get to the point where we don't immediately, you know, start moving to roll back things when one person does one horrible thing that happens to be on parole or probation? Do you have any thoughts about kind of the Willie Hortonizing of, you know, these kind of things like parole and, 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 uh, and uh, I know that's, you know, in our history here in Michigan, that's been very significant is when someone does something on parole, then that tends to make it tougher for the whole group of folks on supervision. I mean, I, you know, I was the head of uh, probation in New York City and juvenile justice in Washington, D.C. And, you know, I had 30,000 people on my caseload, uh, you know, on our, my org- organization's caseload. We were supervising 30,000 people in New York. And... You know, I had about a thousand kids on our custody in D.C. at a time when there were a murder rate was pretty high when I I was commissioner, director there, and um, people did stuff. You know, the kids, six of them a year, were killed somebody or were killed, uh, and so it happened. It made the paper. Uh, I was constantly working with the city council and the mayor to help them understand that uh, this approach was better. Uh, we were using data the whole time. Same with probation in New York City. Mayor Bloomberg was no softy on crime. He was my boss. And uh, he certainly wanted to know about it when somebody did something bad. But I always went equipped with data and with what we did on that person's case. Sometimes, frankly, we did a lousy job on that person's case. Sometimes we did a great job and people live in the real world and bad stuff happens in the real world. Um, so I, I think the conversation's different. The conversation when Willie Horton occurred the conversation when Richard Allen Davis kidnapped Polly Class and we got three strikes and you're out was just terrible. And I'm not saying it's all over. I'm not saying it's done. But I think we're having a different conversation now. And we've got a real opportunity to experiment with um, different approaches and shame on us if we don't measure those approaches when we do it. So we actually learn the real lessons and not just, uh, not just feel good lessons or lessons that uh, fit what our pre- uh, ordained thoughts. You already mentioned one book that you think people should read, but this year I'm asking people if there are any criminal justice related books they might recommend to others. Uh, do you have any other favorites you'd like to, to, to mention? You know, uh, Bruce Western's um, Homeward, uh, if you want to really kind of learn about what, um, what the trip home is like, Bruce really did a nice job uh, following people out of uh, prison in Massachusetts and delving very deeply into their experiences. Uh, that I think, I think is a, is a terrific book. And um, David Harding, uh, Jeffrey Marnoff and Jessica Wise uh, wrote on the outside. It's kind of a different look, different, but similar look to the uh, experience of, of returning home from prison. I, I, I really, I really think that the challenges people face when they come home from prison are just enormous. And our response is generally to threaten them with reincarceration and supervise them in a very ineffective way. It's, it's pretty, really, it's a pretty pathetic approach to helping people succeed post-prison. Uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't improve public safety or human dignity or decency uh, I, I, and and both of those books, in my view, really help folks uh, stick their noses deeply in it. I am writing a book myself, uh, so when I write that, I hope to be back on here and I can recommend my own book. 
Oh, of course, for sure. I uh, can't wait to read it. Uh, how can <laughs> how can people find your new report? Oh, uh, go to uh, Justice Labs website, um, which is uh, oh my God, I'm blanking. It's uh, <laughs> ju- JusticeLab.Columbia.edu. Uh, and if you want to uh, do anything and involve yourself in the uh, uh, Less is More campaign, the organization is called the Katal Center, K-A-T-A-L. So it's, and it's katalcenter.org. And the Less is More page is slash Less is More NY. But if you just go to katalcenter.org, not to confuse everybody, you'll be able to find the Less is More stuff. It's pretty prominent. I always ask the same last question. What did I mess up? What questions should I have asked but did not? You know, I, I, don't, I don't think you miss too many questions. I'm a bureaucrat who's never been on probation and never been on parole. I know you do this, but this is a, this is a you can't understand this problem until you've really had conversations with people under supervision. Josh, I know you know this more than anybody, uh, but this is, this is a human problem. Uh, and and I'm I'm the bureaucrat explaining it. Listen to the humans. Well, you're a yeah. I, I like to think of you as both a human and a bureaucrat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> Thanks so much for doing this. It's always a real pleasure talking to you, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Josh. Take it easy now. It's really great being on. Yeah. Thank you very much. Take care. And now my take. There's been a lot of talk recently about the spike in homicides and domestic violence consistent with the onset of the pandemic. In some sense, it has become a movable feast, an opportunity for everyone to use the spike in homicides to bash whichever reforms they don't like, officeholders they want to bash, or parties they want to embarrass. But is any of that fair? First, yes, there has been a spike in homicides and domestic violence across the country. But no, it is not attributable to any one reform, politician, or party. How do we know this? Well, we know this because the increase in homicides and domestic violence has been nearly universal. It has happened in cities with Republican leadership, cities with Democratic leadership. It has happened in cities with tough-on-crime prosecutors. And it has happened in cities with reform prosecutors. It has happened in places that resist all criminal justice reforms, and it has happened in places where criminal justice reform is frequent. For instance, homicides have increased in Fort Worth, Jacksonville, Fresno, Virginia Beach, Colorado Springs, Omaha, Miami, Tulsa, Bakersfield, Aurora, Stockton, Lubbock, Hialeah, San Bernardino, and many other cities with, wait for it, Republican mayors. So is the answer more police, more prosecution, and more incarceration? Probably not. First, we know that in 34 states and at the federal level over a lot of years, criminal justice reform has gone hand-in-hand with reductions in crime. In addition, where there have been crackdowns and more law enforcement, for instance, Operation Legend, arrests increase, but the homicide rates continue to spike even after those arrests. Research has also revealed that police clear a fairly low percentage of serious crimes and that our assumptions about deterrence are overinflated. In addition, there are potential opportunity costs. Investment in traditional enforcement can trade off with, for instance, with very successful community-based violence interruption programs. 
We also know from long-term research that incarceration, even accounting for the time people remain incapacitated, causes more crime than it prevents. It actually makes our communities less safe overall. For many, this conclusion sounds counterintuitive, but to anyone who has spent time incarcerated or to people who regularly visit prisons, it is not surprising at all. Prisons are trauma factories. They take people who already have problems and make them constantly stressed out, at risk, and often facing actual attacks and trauma. They can be placed in solitary confinement or disciplinary treatment. They can be, you know, under assault. Traumatized people traumatize people. And there are not many truly correctional programs in our corrections system. So yes, there is a spike in homicide and domestic violence. But first, the problem wasn't caused by liberals, by criminal justice reform, or by progressives. We don't actually know what is causing the problem yet. This isn't a dig on Republicans. The spike also probably was not caused by GOP mayors, GOP prosecutors, or tough on crime policies. Second, more policing and arrest definitely is not the answer. Third, other solutions might be better, but we need to invest in them. We need to stop reflexively reaching for the exact same easy answers that don't actually solve the problems. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash decarcerationnation. For those of you who prefer a one-time donation, you can now go to our website and give a one-time donation. Thanks to all of you who have joined us from Patreon or have given us a donation. You can also support us in other non-monetary ways by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or add us on Stitcher, Spotify, or from your favorite podcast app. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me, to Anne Espo for helping out with our transcripts and social media images, and to Alex Mayo, who helps with our website. Make sure and add us on social media and share our posts across your networks. Also thanks to my employer, Safe and Just Michigan, for helping to support the Decarceration Nation podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.